This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society, and I am a host on the channel. And today I am pleased to have with us Dr. R.R. Reno, uh, the editor of the acclaimed journal First Things. Dr. Reno has a doctorate in religious ethics from Yale University, and he was an academic before becoming the editor of First Things. Today we are speaking about his book, the Return of Strong Gods, Nationalism, Populism, and the Future of the West. Welcome, Dr. Reno. A pleasure to be with you. Uh, Dr. Reno, what is the thesis of your book? It's got, I would say, a historical thesis, and then I guess it's what you would say, a kind of anthropological or metaphysical thesis. The historical thesis is that our the political culture of the West is profoundly shaped by the civilizational trauma of 1914 to 1945, and that our political arrangements and what we uh, and our even our cultural consensus is developed in the post-war era as an attempt to prevent a recurrence of these incredibly destructive events. And I describe that as the open society consensus. And the metaphysical or anthropological thesis is that. Human beings unite around shared loves and that we seek uh, to be loyal to, um, we think to seek to be loyal to what I call strong gods. And so part of the populism and the sense that everything is coming undone in 2020 stems from the fact that the post-war consensus of openness has ultimately run its course and become too unworkable for human beings who desire to unite themselves in a shared love. Can you explicate a little bit what you mean exactly by the term strong gods? Well, I don't mean Thor or, you know, um, Zeus or something like that. I, I take it as a metaphor. Uh, the term kind of comes from Durkheim's uh, elementary forms of religious life, uh, where he meditates in the concluding section of that book uh, on modernity and uh, the way in which modern secularism has made the old gods, and he, I think he uses that term, the old gods less and less plausible. And he doesn't mean Christianity, he means progress, reason, and things like that, that were the kind of gods of the Enlightenment. But he speculates that human beings need these kinds of organizing loves and that new gods will emerge. Um, 
And so I, that's the sense in which I use the term strong gods. These are the things that Richard Weaver in, I think it's in the Ethics of Rhetoric, has an essay on God terms. And God terms are the kind of the ones that everybody nods in assent. You know, we have to promote democracy. Uh, progress is a God term. Uh, reason is a God term. Uh, I think Durkheim was incorrect that those terms actually were, have been revived and have had a second life after after the um, World War World War One and World War Two. And what what exactly do you mean by the post-war consensus? Well, in the book, I I look at Karl Popper and Friedrich Hayek. Popper's book, Open Society and Its Enemies, was written during the war by Popper, really very transparently as a as an attempt to put Western culture on a new footing to prevent the return of totalitarianism. And so Popper urges, uh, you know, he urges a, a uh, skeptical attitude towards truth. He specifically commends nominalism because it's, uh, it's a kind of anti-metaphysical view of truth and, uh, and urges his famous principle of falsifiability, um, he urges as the appropriate approach, social scientific knowledge, not metaphysical claims, should be the foundation of society. Small truths, not large truths, so to speak. Weak truths, not strong truths, is how I would put it. And then Hayek, in The Road to Serfdom, another wartime book, um, is not as ambitious as Open Society and its enemies, but is also a call for an approach to society that doesn't require any kind of organizing authority, but relies on the marketplace to provide the organizing basis for a lot of social relations. Um, so those are the two. I, they're not. I take them as exemplary figures, um, rather than specifically causing or in uh, some way defining the post-war consensus. Um, because that consensus was, it was, you know, it was, uh, it arose uh, in a, not from any single source, but from multiple sources. Why was Walter Lippmann's book, Essays in Public Philosophy, widely attacked when it came out in the mid-1950s? Yeah, well, that's a good example of how broad the consensus was. So Lippmann's book, Lippmann was also trying to diagnose the failure of Western civilization in that time of crisis from 1914 to 1945. And he came to the conclusion that um, a liberal society had to recover its metaphysical foundations or its foundations in natural law. And if you look at essays in a public philosophy, I think as I recall, that's the title. It's a, it's a journalistic book. It's not a book of philosophy per se. But the mere fact that Lippmann kind of gestured towards the natural law tradition was interpreted by reviewers as a, a road to serfdom, as a entry point to a return of totalitarianism. So it's a kind of fascinating, um, it's a fascinating response. Because Lippmann was a, you know, card carrying, uh, progressive, uh, founding editor of the New Republic, as I recall. Um, so I think he was also shocked by the response, but I, I think he didn't recognize the new consensus 
it's not one based in natural right, so to speak, a liberalism based in natural right. It was a liberalism based in a kind of openness sentiment. Um, and you, the same time period, you had people like Daniel Bell, his famous book from, I think, 1960, The End of Ideology. So you have a whole literature uh, that comes in the 50s of folks thinking we can move from a politics based on arguments about what the, about what is just or what is good to uh, a, a political system where we're really just basically arguing about means, technical ends. So it's kind of technocratic management of society rather than political debate. Why, in your opinion, did William F. Buckley gradually conform uh, to the post-war consensus? <laughs> Well, part of it was Buckley was very already had the Hayekian side of things. So God and man at Yale uses Hayek's distinction between collectivism and individualism as um, as an organizing motif. But Buckley had a kind of if you read he had a kind of double commitment. You he was criticizing the Yale faculty for teaching collectivism and economics and atheism in religion. And so you can see there's a tension between, if you will, the authority of God versus the freedom of the market. And uh, part of his genius, and one of the reasons I admire him, is that he held those things in tension, um, but over time, I think, developed a uh, the freedom side took priority. Um, the sort of more libertarian side uh, took priority. And so, in, as I talk about in the book, a preface that he wrote to a reissue of God a Minute, you know, I think the 20th anniversary version, where, where he had very kind of argument from pluralism. What he was really trying to do is get Yale to, to, to go its own way rather than going with the herd in higher education. And that's, that's not the argument he made in God and Man at Yale, but it's a new argument that I think he drew upon by the time he gets to the 70s uh, or early 80s. Post-war consensus is so strong, and he was a practical man. He wanted to influence American politics and society. And at some point, you can't fight the consensus. You have to do a jujitsu with it. And that's how I interpret his conformity to the consensus. In your telling, would it be correct to say that the liberal critique of so-called conformity in the 1950s led to the transgressions of the 1960s? Uh, it's so, it is funny, um, and it would be interesting. I don't see the 60s as a disjunctive decade as compared to the 50s. Um, you know, if you look at David Reisman's uh, The Lonely Crowd or the more journalistic uh, um, book by White called The Organizational Man, there was a lot, our elites were very anxious about the post-war return to normalcy, which they thought encouraged too much of a conformist character. Um, and there was also the therapeutic uh, um, mode of 
of of engaging life became very powerful in the 50s. You know, Karen Horney, Roland May, self-realization, you know, Maslow's uh, stages of moral development. You know, that culminate in the post-conventional, as I recall, that's the highest form of moral consciousness. And and so you can see that the students who rebelled, the college students who rebelled in the second half of the 1960s, had learned their lessons well, and uh, they were simply carrying forward this open society consensus to the next stage. Why do you believe that Albert Camus was an exemplar of a certain type of secular moral norm in the post-1945 period? Uh, well, because he he. So you have you have in Popper uh, this notion that an open society cannot be grounded in metaphysical truths. It it has to have we have to have the courage to accept the fact that we give history meaning. History itself has no meaning. And what Camus was was a kind of a literary. He gave very winsome and accessible literary expressions to this particular vision of the human condition. That the existentialism of Camus is that we give life meaning and that this, this, is, the, this is the heroic call of the mature person. They recognize that there is no God above, there are no metaphysical foundations below, and that we have to give our lives uh, meaning. And that, you know, he, he was, uh, most people think that that's nihilism, right? That there's no, if life has no meaning, then like, what, you know, isn't that terrible? And part of Camus' importance in the 50s is he reassured Western elites that far from being a bad fate, this was in fact a heroic call. Um, you know, so his, his novels, uh, you know, typically turn on the people, the characters who have the moral clarity to recognize that the only foundation of humane life is our solidarity and our mere humanity, and not in some higher calling. How exactly? That, that's did... why I think that's why he won the Nobel Prize. I mean, he's not a great writer. I mean, he's a winsome writer, but he's hardly uh, one of the great literary. Um, masters of the 20th century, but he just played such an important role in reassuring um, Western elites that the open society consensus was uh, not nihilistic, but rather it had a, a, its own kind of existential integrity. Is that why you say that Camus and Milton Friedman, in your words, quote, have a great deal in common, unquote? Uh, indeed. I mean, Milton Friedman also uh, Argues very strongly against, um, you know, any kind of metaphysical um, uh, horizon for society. Certainly, society should not. The the best possible society is one with the least, the, the thinnest possible conception of the good, that allows people the greatest possible freedom to define life for themselves. I notice in the book that you don't mention once. Uh, T.S. Eliot, even though he was enormously influential, not only as a literary figure, but as a cultural critic in the first 15 years after the war. Why was that? Well, uh, um, that's a great question. 
And, well, he's part of the counter-tradition that resisted the post-war consensus, and, of course, he lost. So he's not part of the story. I mean, it, in other words, the book, the book is not a history book um, in the sense of it's not a book. Uh, of, you know, a, an adequate book about the post-war consensus would go into different strands that contribute to the dominant consensus as well as the um, dissenting voices of the era. And I put Eliot in the dissent in, in as one of the leading figures of the dissenting voices. I mean, there's a great, um, a very fine review of uh, um, to, uh, toward the idea of a Christian society uh, by Lionel Trilling that was published in Partisan Review in the late 40s uh, when the book came out, and in which Trilling commends to the these to the readers of the journal he commends the book as a an important dis, uh, voice of dissent from the liberal consensus so th- that he thinks it has to be taken seriously because actually uh, Eliot thinks there are strong gods and those strong gods need to be hearkened to um, whereas the post-war consensus was trying to drive strong gods out of the public consciousness how and Trilling himself was an ambivalent figure as well, I would say. Uh, you know, I think he was very much an uh, avatar of this consensus in the liberal imagination. But by the time you get to the 60s, he's got some fascinating essays where he, he, he warns that nature has a say in, in human nature, has a say in what we you know, the, the, it provides limits to our, the openness of our society and that we cannot, in fact, reconstruct our lives any which way we want, but that nature will put limits on us. Um, so he's an ambivalent figure, as, as are probably lots of, lots of uh, uh, folks. I mean, as I mentioned, Richard Weaver, he would obviously be part of the dissenting tradition. Russell Kirk, um, Permanent Things, he's part of the dissenting tradition. Alan Tate, uh, great literary critic, um, again, I think part of this dissenting tradition. You know, the new critics, uh, Robert Penn Warren, um, you know, the new, new criticism, you know, the well-wrought urn, which was a, such an influential, there the literary text took on, it had authority over the student and the critic. And it dictated the constraints of interpretation. And so that's why it's so important that you get to people like Derrida and others who argue that interpretation, you could say, I'm putting it crudely, interpretation creates the work. The work does not um, uh, evoke interpretation. How did the death of God theology fit in with the post-war consensus? It was, uh, it was, <laughs> I mean, somebody like Paul Van Buren was a kind of, uh, or for that matter, also Harvey Cox and others. They were mainline Protestants who theologized this consensus. Um, and so it's a paradoxical thing, right? They redefine God in such a way that God is openness. And so the, genius of Christianity is to make no strong claims. So in the, in, in the crucifixion of Christ, God empties himself of all div, div, divine transcendence. 
<laughs> so it's a, I would call it a theological ideology of the post-war consensus. Paul Tillich does it to a certain extent also, and he talks, he uses the Lutheran doctrine of justification by faith um, and not by works. And already earlier on in the 19th century, liberal German Protestant theologians had interpreted the Nicene Creed and other dogmas as a kind of uh, works righteousness, an attempt to ground Christianity in something other than the sheer act of faith. And so you can see how Tillich then takes the indeterminacy of the choice of faith and turns it into the paradigm of, of uh, the Christian life. And that allows, because I mean, you know, I grew up, I was born in 1959, and as a child, you know, they had these reading groups um, in my parents' church, and they were reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Letters and Papers from Prison, Tillich, Death of God Theology, and it was kind of elite mainline Protestants trying to figure out how this new consensus actually was compatible with Christianity. Because, you know, you want to relieve the tension between what you've come to believe is obviously intuitive truth about the way we should live with your commitment to live in accord with Christian teaching. So you get this huge cottage industry of, of theologians that are reinterpreting Christian teaching to make it conform to the open society consensus. You're right that uh, populism is more than simply a criticism of socioeconomic conditions. That is, in fact, a rejection of the post-war consensus. Can you explicate that a bit? Well, populism is a symptom, and, and it's a symptom of the distrust that the ruled increasingly have uh, of their rulers. Uh, and so, I mean, you can have left populism, you can have right populism. In some ways, it's, 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 it's but the sociological, the proper sociological description of populism is, um, you know, voters or a populace that's unwilling to accept the authority of the dominant consensus. And so it starts to, starts to eject the representatives of that consensus or no longer hearkens to them or no longer listens to them, no longer accepts their authority. I think we've seen that over the last decade, probably already latent in the Tea Party stuff uh, and now in full bloom, left and right, as you have, you know, protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters that, you know, basically no longer accept the authority of the center left. And you had Trump voters who did not accept the authority of the center right when they were told that he was uh, completely unqualified for office. And they said, well, we don't care. We're going to vote for him anyway. And then you get, you know, James, uh, um, uh, uh, what's the fellow at the New York Times who got ejected from his position as a, uh, a editorial page editor, um, James Bennett, that you know, he's saying, well, look, we have to have a free and we have to have an editorial page that allows for open debate of kind of key questions in public life. And you have the you know, junior staff of The New York Times saying, no, no, you don't. The, our side has to, you know, the, the other side is illegitimate. And that's a rejection of that's a rejection of the older open society um, uh, 
an aspect of the open society consensus. Because the open society consensus, the left version was cultural and the right version was economic for the open society consensus. And you could say that, look, the, the more open our economy is, the more open our markets are, um, you know, and this obviously came to the fore after 1989, globalization, the more open markets are to the free flow of goods, capital, and labor, the more prosperous everyone will be in the long run. And we can see that right-wing populism is rejecting the kind of neoliberal economic vision or promise that the more open things are, the more prosperous everybody will be in the long run. They're saying, well, actually, no, we want we, 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 we want to be protected from competition by immigrant labor. We want to be protected by competition from uh, Chinese labor. Um, we want, you know, we want, uh, we don't want capital to be able to uh, flow off, flow, or corporations to be able to locate wherever they want, pay taxes wherever they want, et cetera, et cetera. So we see a pushback from the right. And the open society consensus on the left, you know, John Stuart Mill, free marketplace of ideas, things like that, that's increasingly being uh, challenged by the radical left as well now. So I, I just think it's it's pretty clear that, you know, people should be, the open society consensus is people should be free to define the meaning of their own lives and would be the kind of cultural position. And Political correctness is this kind of paradoxical claim that, yes, people should be free to define the meaning of their own lives, but the people who, are, who, who, are, who, who don't affirm the open society consensus as we define it uh, are not permitted. Um, so if you see what I mean. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Uh, how did liberal immigration policies fit in with the post-war consensus? I just think it was natural, you know, uh, I think I talk in the book, one of the opening, I think it might be the opening chapter, I quote George H.W. Bush's address to the United Nations after the fall of the Berlin Wall, where he sees a future of open borders, open trade, and he says, most important of all, open minds. And so the prestige of openness is so strong in the post-war, by the time you get to the the you know the fall after the fall of communism it's so strong that I think it's very difficult for educated people to defend borders and immigration control. I mean most people are practically minded they'll go okay well you can't just have anarchy, but they generally think that the more, the more freedom there is for people to move and live where they wish, the better society will be. And so the burden of proof is always on limiting immigration. Um, and that just was not true before the post-war era. I mean, people were, you know, the industrialists wanted immigration to, so that there would be cheap labor to, you know, 
work in the steel factories in Pittsburgh. So Andrew Carnegie, I'm sure, was in favor of immigration himself being an immigrant. But it wasn't it didn't have the same moral moral connotations that it has now. And I think if you look at the way people think about immigration, they don't think of it as a policy issue. They think of it as almost a metaphysical commitment that open immigration is a kind of moral imperative. Uh, and I, I just think that's that's a clear symptom or sign of the power of this consensus. Uh, and I've, I've, I think if I can tell, and also of transgenderism, the border between men and women being porous and not fixed. Uh, I, I believe that if you tell me what your views are on transgenderism, I, or if you tell me your views are on the wall that Trump, you know, made part of his campaign in 2016, that your views on the wall, if you tell me what they are, I can, I can deduce from those views what your views on transgenderism are. Well, in my case, that would be correct, um, meaning I'm, although I detest Trump, qua Trump, or qua as president, I am an a adherent of um, firm immigration controls, and I'm, um, following from that, I don't adhere to transgenderism. Yep. So, I mean, it's not 100%, but I'm just saying, it's one of those, and that's what helped me when I was working on the book, or before I started the book when I was working on the idea trying to formulate these thoughts in my mind it was uh, it was uh, it was that I went wow there must be something deeper uh, where did that connection come from how is it that people why do people why do people's policy preferences fall so strongly on the open versus controlled uh, axis Open versus closed. Now, closed, of course, is a very pejorative word, um, but uh, and that's deliberately done that way. That's how one reason the post-war consensus works. It's people are inclusive or they're exclusive. People are open or they're closed. People are progressive or they're reactionary. Uh, <laughs> you know, and it's the power of a consensus to be able to to be able to define itself in that way. Um, and it, which is normal. I mean, sociologically, that's just the way things shake out. Um, and and part of the book, one of the goals of the book is to evoke for the reader the, the 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 logic of the consensus. I don't tell a history in the strict sense, but I try to move historically from the immediate end of the war to the post, uh, you know, the the after the fall of communism, and because that. I mean, obviously, the Iron Curtain was a limit, and there was a there was a border, so to speak. And when that fell, the open society consensus really didn't face any obvious immediate limitations. And it was then that we got sort of utopian end of history thinking, um, which was quite powerful and evident in Bush's evocation of open borders, open, you know. Uh, Open trade, open borders, and open minds. Um, and a lot of the problems that we have politically stem from the fact that the consensus, it, it did, it became utopian. Um, and I look at, I, I talk about the Harvard University 
general education a report on general general education for a free society is the name of this report and so it was interesting because in 1943 this committee uh uh uh, uh James you know James Bryant Conant the um president of Harvard formed this committee and he was, he was one of the civilian heads of the Manhattan project and very much involved in the war effort. And by summer 1943, that was, you know, Stalingrad, the Germans had been stopped at Stalingrad. It was clear the outcome of the war. Um, and so he began to think about what well, we've got to think about how to win the peace, <laughs> so to speak. And, and so the general education for a free society is this attempt to sort of form a consensus about education of American elites that would ensure that they that our American elites would be able to defend democracy and you know bring you know prevent the return of totalitarianism. And in that report, the leitmotif is achieving the proper balance between the authority of the Western tradition and the freedom of students to ask critical questions. So it's continuity and change. It's authority and freedom. You see that in that report. It's very artfully done. And I was, and as I said, you could see that in the, in the new criticism in English literature. You know, which is that the authority of the literary work, but obviously the freedom for creative interpretation within that authority. And uh, it was a marvelous balance. Um, you know, and I was educated in that tradition, um, in the late stages of that tradition. You know, it was uh, Plato to present Western civilization required class. And you read the great classics of the Western tradition but you were really free to make up your own mind about what you thought about those classics. And what happened is that the openness and freedom side was always had the prestige and the burden of proof was always on the continuity and authority side. And by the time you get to the late eighties and the, the canon wars, you know, about whether or not, you should, whether or not the West, you know, Hey, heave ho, the Western canons got to go. I think that was the early 1990s protests at Stanford University to get rid of the Western, the required Western civilization uh, course. That's just, that's the evolution of the consensus and the balance was lost and the openness side uh, became predominant uh, to the exclusion of the authority and continuity side. And my interpretation of populism, and this was true not just in education, in higher education, it was true at every level of our society in terms of our cultural outlook, in terms of our economic policies, in terms of our foreign policy. We're going to bring democracy and openness to Iraq and the Middle East. And so uh, that lack of balance has, I think, led to this utopian openness that I think think voters are rebelling against. When did diversity and multiculturalism become important values in the West? So, for example, in his wartime writings, George Orwell, who wrote um, a couple of essays of importance in terms of describing what he thought the nature of Englishness was, both terms are um, not used or conveyed in any sense whatsoever. (laughs) Yes. um, 
diversity has an interesting, uh, I think Peter Wood wrote the book on diversity, um, which is a very useful study of the emergence of that and the prestige that that term got. But it, it really took on a central role in our thinking because of the Bakke decision. And the Bakke decision was 1978. It concerned um, racial quotas for medical school. Uh, quotas is not the right word. It, 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 this, uh, it, it, it had to do with medical school admissions and a white Vietnam vet was denied admissions a couple times to University of California Medical School. Um, and, but his, his MCAT score was substantially above uh, the MCAT scores of, I think, all the black uh, 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 admits to the medical school. And so he litigated on the grounds of reverse discrimination. And uh, the Supreme Court, the amicus brief from the, the, to the Supreme Court for that case, um, emphasized the importance of freedom for universities to create classes that uh, were reflected racial and ethnic diversity, that this was conducive to a better educational environment. Um, and Justice Powell, I think, who wrote the uh, controlling opinion in that case, uh, really fixed upon that. And so the notion then was that diversity is a is an educational good. And then very quickly, it just became a plenary good. It became what, as I said earlier in our conversation, Richard Weaver calls the God term. It's a God term. And so if you say to somebody, you know, um, I really like this uh, neighborhood. It's very diverse. People are like, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. That's good. Um, or there's not enough diversity. Uh, everybody nods. I mean, this is a, it's a conversation stopper. Um, uh, the, the diversity word. Uh, and I think it, it achieved that status partly because it, it allowed for a way to navigate questions of justice without actually addressing them. Like, is it just, uh, you know, are the emissions policies that deny admission to Bakke, are they just or unjust? You could kind of punt on that and say, well, that's the one question, but there's this legitimate question about what, what's cost, what, what, what can, is conducive to the ideal educational environment. And so diversity allows for, but then justice is a strong God. So it's not surprising that we live in a time that tries to turn away from justice and talk about some kind of openness motif that leaves open the question. You know, and that's the beauty of diversity. Like, well, what is it? How much is good? Is there anything, is it possible there's too much? Diverse with respect to what? Um, all that stuff is kind of left vague. And that's, if you go all the way back to Popper, Open Society and its enemies, uh, you know, uh, vagueness is a virtue, not a vice. Because it leaves questions open. Open questions are better than closed questions. Would it be true to say that you view nationalism in mostly a positive light? In 2020, yes. I certainly wouldn't have thought so in the 1930s. Uh, but public life is always a question of fighting the battles of the present, not the past. There's a tendency in intellectuals and generalists, to, like generals, to fight the last war. And if I'm right about the open society consensus becoming all-powerful and utopian, then 
we need to correct in the direction of uh, things that are solid, not fluid, things that are trustworthy and and homemaking, so to speak, not diversifying and, and uh, things that create ambiguity and uncertainty. So in that part of the book, I emphasize this notion of home and, uh, you know, uh, the open society consensus taken to a st- extreme makes all of us refugees and all of us kind of uncertain um, about where we fit and whether there is a home base, so to speak, where we're safe. And so it's not surprising that in the last decade, you know, elite college students, you would think they should be the most secure people of all, given the fact that things are extremely likely to work out well for them. But they're the ones leading the charge and calling for safe spaces. And it's an indication that the open society consensus has created a kind of feeling of homelessness, lack of security, lack of clear belonging. And I think identity politics is an ersatz attempt to fill that need. Well, at least I belong to you know, my identity group. At least there, I, there I'm home. Uh, you know, there, there, I, uh, you know, I know who I am and where I stand. And I think it's it's more healthier for people to to take their stand and take their identity from you know faith, family, and civic life rather than our DNA, because uh, ultimately the DNA I think is a perverse strong god, not a healthy strong god. Whereas, you know, a national identity is a strong one. I mean, is a is a health is a potentially very healthy one, because it, you know, it's not biological; it's political, and political realities are human, not animal. Can you expand on the following passage in the book? Quote: Today, the greatest threat to political health of the West. It's not fascism or the Ku Klux Klan, but a decline in solidarity and a breakdown of the trust between the leaders and the led. <laughs> I, mean, I think we've witnessed it over the last couple of months. Um, you know, I was traveling in the Midwest last earlier this month uh, just to get a sense of the mood of the nation. And uh, boy, the, the, the mistrust um, is pretty deep. Um, you know, so the danger is that everything's going to fly apart. The danger is not that we're going to, we're going to kind of over consolidate into a kind of quasi fascist state. I mean, that hardly seems the greatest threat given all this, all of the dispersing, polarizing, um, t- uh, trends in, in our society. Um, but like I said, it's, it's the, um, generals fight the last war and, uh, people, people can't resist the analogies to the 1930s. <laughs> and it's not that there aren't some, I mean, there are obviously some, I mean, the, the disorder, the fragmentation, uh, the feeling that everything's falling apart, blowing apart, uh, certainly can lead people to sort of say, well, you know, uh, I'd rather have an authoritarian strongman than 
a Hobbesian war of all against all. That's obviously what Hobbes recognized, that if you have to choose between anarchy and the Leviathan, you'll opt for the Leviathan. So my, my, the, the thrust of my book is that at, at the end where I turn to what, where, where we need to go from here is that people who – responsible leadership in 2020 is to propose to the American people, and this will be true for the French people or the German people, to pro- propose to the American people noble loves that they can share. Would it be true to say that you are or were, when the book was written, optimistic about the future of the West? And are you still? Uh, <laughs> you know, after 9-11, I was, I, I was going to meetings and talking to people who were very concerned about Islamic terrorism and the threat that it posed to the West. And they were shocked at my indifference or my nonchalance. And uh, and I asked a friend of mine, do you really believe that Islam is the greatest threat to the West? And he kind of said, eh, no, actually, it probably doesn't pose an existential threat. And then I said, well, what is the greatest threat to the West? And he looked at me and said, the West. <laughs> so we're in a paradoxical situation in the West, which is that Western culture has never been more powerful than it is now. Um, it it. I mean, communism, it destroyed Confucian culture in China, and it westernized the Chinese political and cultural imagination. Not completely. It's, a, it's, a, it's not European. It's, it's its own China. It's its own place with its own, its own culture. But it's a lot closer to the West now than it was in 1950. Um, and I think that's one mistake that James Burnham made in his famous book, The Suicide of the West, he didn't recognize that communism is a Western, a distinctively Western ideology. And multiculturalism is a distinctively, uniquely Western ideology. Uh, diversity is a distinctly Western ideology. And, and, and these are strong. They're, they're globally quite strong. And paired with the sort of technocratic, scientific um, outlook, I think you have actually a, 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 grow, a, a growing westernized global consensus. So that's the one side of it. In that sense, the West is under no threat. Uh, on the other side of it, uh, I see that Western consensus as becoming increasingly inhuman and unable to uh, provide people with a satisfying foundation for personal or civic life. And in that sense, it's in trouble. Um, so, I mean, I hope that's clear. I mean, so uh, I guess that's not a straightforward answer. Am I optimistic or pessimistic? <laughs> it's just I don't think anybody that says that we've got a, we have a problem because the anti-Western bias of higher education, I just have to shake my head and say, no, 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 no. That is the decadent final stage of the open society consensus, which is, which was and has been the consensus in the West since 1945. The only people who are anti-Western are Westerners, people of the West. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? 
That's a great question. The one thing I want them to take, uh, uh, two things I would say. One, and I think I've tried, alluded to it, I just spoke about, is I want them to have achieve some analytic clarity so that they don't fall into the, that, so that they're able to see the crisis of our time in the proper way. Um, and that crisis really is a crisis of, of, what I would call a crisis of home. Um, people don't feel that they have a solid place to stand, personally, culturally, or economically. Um, and then the second thing I want people to take away is that um, the responsible leaders have to give people a firm place to stand, um, and that we are not going to, I don't think the future is the battle between authority and freedom or what have you, um, but or between fascism and liberalism. I think the coming struggle will be between perverse, uh, perverse loves and healthy ones, perverse loyalties and healthy loyalties, perverse um, foundations for a common life and healthy ones. Perverse authorities and versus healthy authorities, to put it in those terms. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Dr. Reno, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles. Well, thank you. Oh, you're, you're quite welcome. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books Network. Thank you, Dr. Reno. Great. Well, um, enjoy your day. <laughs>